We return to our Bringing Light into Darkness show with Scott Ritter. We are discussing the question of whether U.S. intervention and support for Ukraine is in our perceived interest at the cost of the Ukrainian people's interest. Enjoy. And therefore, this can go on and maybe transform into kind of a Syrian scenario where there's different interests occupying different parts of that area and military strikes continuing ad nauseum that I think Russia will not find acceptable into the future. I know you don't have a crystal ball and can't see the future clearly, but what are the prospects? What do you see transpiring over the next few months? And can you update us on the casualty ratios and numbers since our August visit? Well, let's just start with, again, some some statements. Russia's forces up through the end of August and into September were uniformly static in terms of the size and composition of their force structure dedicated to the special military operations. Around 200, 210,000 Russian troops were allocated for this task. The Ukrainians you know, had an army, uh, started with an army around 260,000. They had 300,000 reserves, another 400,000. Um, Scott, let me interrupt you real quick. I'm sorry. But that number alone, that 200 to 210,000 that you're referring to Russians, doesn't that clearly indicate that their initial motivation was never to take Kiev and take over Ukraine, that the sheer size of the army indicates that it was more of a special operation in the east? Would that be a fair deduction? Well, ultimately, we won't know until the Russians write the definitive history of of the special military operation. I think there's a lot of political sensitivities uh, linked to what Russia was thinking going on. Russia has been less than clear about this. But once you take a look at what they did and, and try to figure out why they did it, it seems to be that Russia felt that they were going to receive very little resistance, that uh, Russian intelligence services had prepped ba- the battlefield, so to speak, to as much as possible keep the Ukrainian military in barracks and have civilian leaders keep the civilian population from uh, rising up. The initial Russian advances were very quick without with little regard to flank protection or rear security protection. Forces were sent forward in an aggressive fashion to make a presence known, but it was unsupportable from a military perspective. To give you an example, Kharkov, early on, a force of 60 uh, special forces went into Kharkov to make their presence known. But instead of having the city gates open and the people staying quiet, the military staying in the barracks, the Ukrainian military ambushed them and killed all 60 of them. You know, and, and this this was something that was reflected throughout as Russian columns were ambushed by Ukrainians who were laying in wait. It appears that the Russians got the intelligence wrong, that the Ukrainians were, in, in effect, carrying out one giant ambush. So the, the initial phases of the uh, special military operation were very sloppy and very expensive and very costly for Russia. They sent forces towards Kiev in a very aggressive fashion, again, running into heavy resistance. The force structure was not one that is conducive to the taking of a city of 5 million. You don't have forty to 60,000 troops attempt to fight their way into a city of 5 million. It appears that the Russians believed that the shock and awe of their initial advance would cause the Ukrainian government to capitulate, that they could basically get away with a relatively bloodless victory. This wasn't well, Scott, also, also, can you speak to the, the claim, which seems to have validity to me, and, and I'm certainly not in any position to judge the veracity of it, I guess, but many people were claiming, and it seemed rational, that the attack 
or the appearance of the attack in the forces moving towards Kiev was also to draw forces from the east by the Ukrainian forces so that their main focus in the Donbass, the Russian focus there, would not face as much resistance. Do you include that in your analysis? Yeah, but I've always said this. Once it became clear that the Ukrainian government wasn't going to capitulate, what the Russians did is sustain their initial plan, putting pressure on Kiev for the purpose of drawing away reinforcements from the battle, the decisive battle that take place in the east. It's classic maneuver warfare, carry out a major feint uh, that fixes an enemy force in place and requires reinforcement. And that appears to be of what happened in Kiev. The uh, Ukraine's were compelled to divert significant military forces to reinforce the Kiev area and and keep those forces in place to prevent any possibility of a Russian encirclement of Kiev or direct assault into Kiev. They did the same thing with their amphibious forces, making it feel as if there would be an assault uh, on Odessa, and that compelled the Ukrainians to keep significant forces uh, frozen there while the Russian forces carried out their enlargement, the Crimea bridgehead into Kherson, then moving through Zaporizhia to create a land bridge with the Donbass. You know, this was able to be accomplished because the Ukrainians were unable to divert reinforcements to these areas because of the Russian feints against Kiev and Odessa. Once the Russians had secured the land bridge, they were able to withdraw their forces from Kiev and consolidate their offensive power in the Donbass, where they began a summer-long offensive designed to recapture Lugansk and Donetsk. They were able to achieve 100% reconquest of Lugansk, and they were able to get, I believe, in the area of 60% reconquest of Donetsk. Very hard fighting. The Ukrainians had eight years to dig in. The uh, fortifications that Ukraine has put in place, in Donetsk especially, the most sophisticated, intricate, and hardened fortifications in the history of modern warfare. And it's, it's a difficult struggle, but throughout the summer, Russia was grinding them down. And this is where we got ridiculous casualty ratios. You know, Ukrainian units would go to the front line, spend a week in the front line, and they withdrawn with 60% losses. And this is having never seen a Russian. The Russians simply blew them away with artillery and then walked into the trenches and killed whoever was uh, left or took them prisoner. This is a very one-sided battle, but unfortunately for the Russians, in order to concentrate that military force in the Donbass, they had to thin out their lines elsewhere. They still only had 200 to 210,000 troops. Many of those troops, the majority, are required for rear area security, rear security protection, and uh, logistics and things of that nature. Only about 60,000 troops were available for actual frontline duty. That's 60,000 on a 1,000-kilometer uh, front. That means 60 guys per kilometer. I challenge your readers to pace off a kilometer and tell me how you're going to defend it with 60 guys against 100 tanks. You're not. The Ukrainians were able to concentrate this NATO-built army that had been built up over the summer of 40,000, 50,000, and achieve breakthroughs that uh, caused the Russians to withdraw from the Kharkov region and then later in Kherson. But the casualties they suffered there were were outlandish. Uh, we're talking, you know, 40, 50, 60,000 casualties. To give you an example of how one-sided this fight was, in the Kherson region alone, in October, the month of October, the Ukrainians suffered 12,500 casualties. The Russians suffered between 1,300 and 1,500. You know, this is unsustainable on the part of Ukraine. It's made more unsustainable by the fact that the first wave of, of, of this reconstituted army was burned out on the battlefield. The Ukrainians planned on a second wave, again, another 40,000, 50,000 to come in intact. But because of the high casualties that are being taken, 
They had to feed these units in piecemeal to, to compensate for their losses. So that second corps that was trained by NATO got thrown into the battle piecemeal, and now it's gone. There is no second corps now to serve as the reserve. Ukraine is actively pleading with the West uh, to uh, train up a, a third corps, and that's happening right now with pledges from the European Union and other NATO countries uh, to train between uh, 20 and 40,000 troops. But now the big problem is where's the equipment going to come from? NATO has pretty much run out of equipment. Uh, Scott, is this 20 to 40,000 Ukrainian troops that are getting trained? Those are 20 to 40,000 Ukrainian troops. Uh, on addition to the Ukrainian troops, but what we've seen on the battlefield is thousands of mercenaries. And these aren't the fat, flabby, wannabe warriors that went over there in March and April. These are hardcore special operations veterans who have been recruited through a U.S.-funded private military contractor front who are looking for executive protection experience. That's basically a term used for people who have undergone very specific special operations training. And they've taken these people and they've formed them into elite assault and reconnaissance units that basically lead off the Ukrainian assaults by penetrating the Russian defenses, getting into Russian rear areas and disrupting command control communications and logistics. Scott, and again, excuse me for interrupting you, but this is fascinating analysis. Does this include, you know, I've seen some reports that some of these Muslim fundamentalists had been funneled in there as well. Has that been verified or have you seen any of those reports? There's Ukrainian volunteer units that have incorporated some of these, but those are not the elite units I'm talking about. The elite units I'm talking about are formed from uh, combat veterans or people with specific combat-related skills. If you bring in these Muslims uh, volunteers, they'll be incorporated into the territorial defense units, the nationalist units, which has a higher level of fanaticism and, and loyalty to extremist causes and a lower level of military professionalism. Now, these are the units that when they go to the front line, they tend to die in large numbers because they don't know how to fight. The Ukrainian forces also include many thousands of Polish and Romanian soldiers. The Romanians may, in fact, be legitimate volunteers, but the Polish soldiers appear to be entire battalions that just simply take off the Polish flag, put on the Ukrainian flag and go to war as an organized military unit. The Russians have been fighting these forces in eastern Ukraine for some time now, killing thousands of them. The Russians know what's going on. In fact, uh, they estimate that upwards of 70 percent of some of the military formations that they're facing in the Donbass region are uh, composed of Polish, Romanian and mercenary forces that Ukrainian troops are actually in the minority at this point in time. But my point in bringing all this up is that Ukraine has burned through its military capabilities. The situation in Kherson, where the Russians reduced this bridgehead, pulled back across the river, consolidated their defenses, is probably freed up another 20 to 30,000 Ukrainian troops who are currently getting prepared to launch renewed attacks against Russian positions in the Zaporizhia and Donbass region. But the Russian defenses have hardened, and I think you're going to see these Ukrainian forces be defeated piecemeal as they have been in the past. Meanwhile, Russia has sought to mobilize 300,000, they called it a partial mobilization, 300,000 reservists have been brought uh, back into active duty. On top of this, there's an additional 100 to 150,000 uh, volunteers. <laughs> so that's a total uh, allotment of uh, 450,000 fresh troops. 87,000 of these reservists have already been incorporated into the Russian defensive lines, helping secure them. The volunteers are being formed into what's called a BARS unit, B-A-R-S. It's a specific kind of reserve type uh, structure. But there's 220,000 
of these reservists that are being formed into uh, motorized rifle divisions. Uh, 10 to 15 division equivalents are being organized and trained and equipped right now as we speak. They'll be starting to enter the special military operations zone sometime next month. Now, understand this, when you take these BARS units, these reserve units, and you throw them in on a defensive position, they'll free up additional Russian assault, regular army assault brigades. So the Russians will probably be able to assemble a combat strike capability of around 400,000 troops that will be ready to be used by the end of next month, early January. Ukraine has nothing, nothing that can stand up to them. It's game, set, match. I mean, I, I think the, the nature of this conflict is going to dramatically change in the coming months as Ukraine continues to burn out what li limited capability it has left. And Russia is preparing this massive offensive strike force that will be employed as the Russian high command sees fit. Well, to that point, then, Scott, getting back to the original question, how does this thing end? If the Russians are not intent on taking all of Ukraine, but just want to secure the east and south and these new provinces that now are part of Russia or whatever, but the U.S.-backed West in the future would not let peace exist. In other words, wherever these lines are met, they would continue to bomb. They would continue to funnel in all of these artilleries and various mechanisms to continue to threaten the civilian population or, or any population. I don't see Russia stopping and finding that an acceptable outcome. Is that, I mean, is that what you see as like, you know, like a great division of Ukraine and, and ongoing warfare going on? Can you comment on that? Well, I mean, what I see is what Russia says they're going to accomplish. And that is the stated objectives of the special military operation. Demilitarization means the elimination of all NATO influence from the Ukrainian military. And now that the Ukrainian military has become a de facto proxy army of NATO, it means the total elimination of the Ukrainian military. There will be no Ukrainian military when this conflict ends. End of story. Uh, so all this fantasy about, oh, the Ukrainians are going to dig in and they're going to turn this into a permanent war. No, they're not. Russia will destroy the Ukrainian military. That's how this war ends. Denazification. All of these ultra-nationalists will be removed from political power. They will have no role in the political future of Ukraine. They will be outlawed. A Ukrainian constitution that will be prepared by whatever government takes over once the Zelensky government is removed. And remember, the Russians have called the Zelensky government a Nazi regime. So if you're engaged in denazification, the Nazi regime will be removed. Whatever replaces it will have to pass a new constitution that bans the uh, odious, noxious ideologist Stepan Bandera and his uh, ultra white supremacist, uh, ultra nationalist movement that has pretty much seized control of the Ukrainian government today. That will be eliminated. How Russia achieves this is the fundamental question. We know what Russia wants to accomplish. How Russia gets there is a different question. An answer to that could be found perhaps in an answer to a question posed to Vladimir Putin earlier this month in Valdai. Uh, he holds a Valdai conference. It's a, a national security conference with various speakers, and Putin addresses it every year. And he, he gives a one-hour presentation, and then he hangs around for four hours of straight questions. And it's in the question and answer period that oftentimes the most interesting information comes out. He was asked by a Hungarian journalist. He wanted to go to Odessa. He said, what would be a good time to visit? 
Putin, who has a good sense of humor, by the way, said uh, the sooner rather than later. And the serious thing, he, he basically, and I'm paraphrasing there, he said that Odessa could either be the key to peace or the source of the violent resolution of this problem. And that, that's interesting because when we take a look at things, Odessa, the, the province of Odessa, not just the city, but the whole province, because there's several ports uh, that give Ukraine access to the Black Sea area. This is key to Ukraine's uh, future economic survival. They have lost the Sea of Azov. That will never be theirs again. That is permanent Russian sea. They've lost, of course, Crimea. So the only thing they have left going for them is Odessa province. And so what Putin is saying is that if the Ukrainians want peace, then they should seek peace while Odessa can be visited. Uh (laughs) Like right now, you have a chance that if you meet our terms, when this war ends, Ukraine will include an outlet to the Black Sea, which is the key to their future economic viability and survivability. But if they wait, Russia's yeah. going to take it, and then, uh, then that's over. Every time they wait, every time they continue to steal and allow the West to push them on and on and on, they're just losing more and more of their potential to be an autonomous country in the future with these trade routes and ports and trade issues that are connected to this territory being no longer there. In other words, the the United States, by prolonging this war, by endlessly feeding Ukraine military equipment and blowing up their peace talks back in March, the end result is a catastrophe for Ukraine while the U.S. exercises its failed strategy to weaken Russia through sanctions and this war. Hey, in the last couple of minutes that we have with you, there was a recent missile strike inside Poland, and apparently now is everyone's coming to the understanding that it was a, an anti-ballistic missile response from Ukraine. But of course, Zelensky immediately blamed it on Russia and indicated, you know, therefore it's an attack on NATO is an attack on all. And let's get all these NATO troops fighting Russia was the was the overall deal there. Can you, in, in the last few minutes that we have with you, I think, again, it's interesting to me that all of these claims that we've been talking about and we, we've covered on this show and have been put out, whether it's Buka, whether it's all of these things that you've addressed, when Russia says they didn't do it, I mean, it, it turns out that they didn't do it. It's not that they're... They're truthful all the time, but that when it comes to foreign policy, we have consistently misled the American public and deceitfully gotten the United States public to believe half-truths or lies and or exaggerations, while Russia has a much more accurate track record, comparatively speaking, when we examine the denials of the accusations emanating from Ukraine, which are then largely enabled by our U.S. government and media pundits, despite the chronic absence of evidence to support those positions. I'm trying to think of areas in which Russia was not truthful. With this particular missile strike, can you share the concern of potentially NATO getting involved linked to that particular episode? Obviously, that's not going to happen, but certainly that's what Zelensky would like to see. Well, let me just start off by proving to everybody that I'm not a Russian shill or a Russian propagandist. Let me give you an example where Russia did not tell the truth. 2014 in the Crimea, the little green men that were scurrying all over Crimea, seizing radio stations and stuff, uh, men in green uniforms with no identifying markers. The Russian government early on said they're not ours. These are, of course, uh, Crimean patriots who are doing this by themselves. Uh, Later on, uh, Putin said, no, they were ours. We did it. So Russia is capable of uh, speaking in a less than truthful fashion. 
that Crimean treaty that they had, right? That allowed what ten or twenty thousand Russian troops. You're talking about people different than the the ten or twenty thousand that were allowed under the treaty to secure the the, the Sevastopol um, area. The, the well, um, but the treaty doesn't allow the troops unimpeded access to the totality of Crimea. It requires them to remain on their on their bases. I'm talking about troops going out and seizing television stations, uh, radio stations, and other strategic areas. My point my point is that you know Russia hid the truth because it wasn't in their national security interest to do so. So Russia is, you, you have to challenge everything that everybody says. You, know, you can't assume they're automatically telling the truth. But in the case of Ukraine today, Russia has yet to be cut out in a lie. Let's, let's look at two things about the uh, missile attack on Poland. First of all, understand that Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania are NATO members. That means that they sit down at various NATO military command and control and intelligence centers, and they track all the information about what's going on in the Ukrainian conflict live. I've sat in, uh, in command centers like this. Every time a surface-to-air missile is fired, it's instantly picked up and tracked, instantly picked up and tracked. Every electronic emission, every radar emission is tracked, actively tracked. Every time the Russians fire a cruise missile or uh, another, you know, a ballistic ballistic missile uh, into Ukraine, it is tracked from the moment of launch to the moment of impact, continuously tracked. The reason why I say this is that when the S-300, which is a Ukrainian surface-to-air missile, impacted on Polish soil, you had the Poles, the Lats, the Estonians, and the Lithuanians all coming out calling it an unprovoked act of aggression by Russia against Poland, and they were screaming for NATO intervention, screaming. Their political leadership and their military leadership knew what the facts were. They knew that this wasn't a Russian missile, yet without a moment's hesitation, were immediately screaming for NATO intervention. This should be extraordinarily suspicious on, on anybody who is an observer of this. Why are they getting ahead of the facts when they know what the facts are, why are they promulgating a lie that gets them involved in Ukraine? And the answer is because they are desperate to fulfill a Ukrainian desire for NATO intervention in Ukraine. Uh, so right off the bat, now we know that there's nations that are interested in a diplomatic off-ramp. That's the United States, Germany, France, and others who uh, were more reticent and uh, said, no, the facts don't support the claim. And you know we're not going to act as if this was a Russian attack. Now we come down to the actual missile itself. The S-300 missile is a radar-guided missile. It, it is cued to its target by a big scanning missile that is detecting incoming targets. And then later, as that target comes closer in range, a specialized tracking radar opens up and, and puts a beam on the target. Then the missile is fired, guides in on that beam towards the target. The Russian missiles are coming in from the east to the west. The Ukrainian surface-to-air missiles radars are tracking from the west to the east. The missile fires from a west to east trajectory. And yet this missile flew nearly 100 kilometers on a east to west trajectory. How did that happen? Now, people can say that this, uh, this missile malfunctioned. Okay, the malfunction implies a lack of surface controls, meaning you fired the missile, and the missile lost the ability to fly in a coherent fashion. That would not permit the fulfillment of a long-range ballistic trajectory. If there was a problem with surface controls, that missile would have crashed well before that. The only way the missile could have done what it did here, given the nature of its guidance system, is if somebody took the tracking radar, oriented it from the east to the west, 
and projected a target beam at a point in the sky that the S-300 guided to and then guided to the end of its fueled cycle, meaning it runs out of fuel. At that point in time, it becomes a ballistic missile and falls in on the ground. This was a deliberate attack by Ukraine on Poland. Just telling you right now, a deliberate attack. Hey, well, listen, we we are out of time. Let's let's end it there. I mean, that's an outstanding analysis, which I'm sure will prove. Well, we'll see if it proves to be um, verified in the coming day. All the indications are pointing that way as well. But that's the I love the physics analysis and the approach there. Listen, I just want to remind our listeners that we've had the great privilege of visiting with Scott Ritter, former weapons inspector. And before we let you go, Scott, I know that people are really needing alternative information. Every time I sit down to listen to any of your broadcasts, there are elements of information that just are not available in the mainstream media, obviously. So how do people access your your Inspector Weekly shows and other YouTube videos of your interviews? Well, I've created the website called scottritterextra.com. And on there, uh, we, we collect everything. For instance, when you send me a link to the show, it'll go on that website. All my podcasts that I do that I'm guests of podcasts will go on there, as well as the two podcasts that I originate, or three, actually. I do one with Russians where once a week I try to interview a Russian voice. Then I have two Ask the Inspector episodes where I take questions from the audience. I also, through that website, have a Substack where I publish original material, as well as list all of the articles that I've published around. It's a one-stop shop. You can access everything. Again, scottritterextra.com. All right. Thank you for the time today. Really appreciate that you're staying vigilant and staying out there with this information in the dearth of uh, information that's out there. It's, it's, it's really helpful to me to try to get closer to the truth of the understanding of what's going on in this world. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. See you next week. Don't be late.